Good morning, everyone. Good to see everyone. If you'll bow your heads with me and we'll pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come into a free zone of the world we live in to worship you, reflect, and learn. Father, we pray that you would bless Phil this morning as he brings our lesson. Father, clear our hearts and our minds that we may absorb and apply what you have for us. Father, we pray a special prayer this morning for all the hurricane victims of Florence and the surrounding areas. Things happen, Father, we don't understand, but we know it's all in your plan. And we just pray that uh, you'll watch over and take care of those and help the relief efforts um, as those efforts go out. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. comments about it. I'm not surprised, but I was telling somebody, I'm going to ask you to teach one of these Sundays, and I'm going to actually show up, because I never get to hear you teach. And uh, so someday I just need a week off, which I think you probably think I always been doing that a lot, but uh, you may have heard, you may not have. Um, Kim and I went out of town on, uh, and Catherine, our daughter, went out of town uh, Labor Day weekend because we were invited uh, to our son Andrew, uh, who lives in Georgia now, uh, invited us to come. Yeah, it made all the Bulldog fans happy. Uh, lives in Georgia, and uh, he's dating a girl who's Jewish, and uh, they invite us down to uh, celebrate Rosh Hashanah. Uh, and so we hadn't, been, I hadn't been invited down yet to see their, you know, see where he lived. And so it was like, I should go. I mean, I don't know if I'll get invited again. So, uh, so we were down in Georgia last weekend and had a delightful time. And we're back now. And we said last time, we're, we're doing, for those of you who haven't been here, uh, we're working our way slowly, slowly, slowly. Uh, if you don't have it today, you're okay, because we're still like the hurricane stalled um, in the first section, drowning in it, um, not to make light of the hurricane. But um, we started several weeks ago to begin to work our way through the social principles of the United Methodist Church. Um, Walt Seaman asked us to do this uh, about a year ago, and um, 
So we're partly doing it in his honor, and we're we're at turns grateful and uh, challenged. Um, but just to remind ourselves of, of the big picture, and that is um, the reason that we care about all these things, and the reason United Methodist Church cares about these things, because it, it's a very concrete way, uh, sometimes magically concrete, um, to try to live out what it means to love God and love neighbor. Uh, that can Most of us have heard that all our lives. Um, but when you start asking, uh, like that one person in the gospel did, like, but who is my neighbor? And you realize, as we did several weeks ago, that your neighbor includes um, not even just the person who lives next door to you, but people in your community, and maybe people across time, and maybe not just people, but maybe the rest of creation. And it begins, it, it certainly gets overwhelming, um, but it reminds us, um, at least reminds me, like how narrow my focus can often be. And I think when we reframe some of these things that uh, the world is deeply polarized about, um, and we realize the reason we care as Christians is because we're trying to figure out what it means to love our neighbors uh, near and far and try to get a little concreteness to that. And so we have tried to embrace this really beautiful part of the United Methodist tradition, which is they were the first major Protestant denomination to go on record with these social principles um, to say, what does living out the way of Jesus actually look like in daily life in the social realm uh, with all that messiness? And so that's where we are. And you might recall that last time, I said we were going to leave the first section, but for the very first time ever, we didn't get through as much as I thought we would. Um, and so, yeah, I, we said we would come back. And there's two things I want to try to talk about today. And all I, all I can do in uh, 30 minutes or so is just try to, is try to help us see why we should care. Um, we're not going to solve any problems. I'm not going to be able to even tell you, and, and this is what you have to do about it today. It's just like, why should we care? Almost every section of the social principles, and if you go and read the resolutions that go with it, uh, it always says that United Methodists has an have an obligation to educate themselves about these matters. And that's an important thing to do. Um, because it's, it's com they're complex matters. They're, they're not easy to think through. Um, but we need to. And so today we're talking, um, we're talking about the creation. We're still talking about the created order, what that first section calls the natural order. And there's a section in the resolutions that you might be surprised to find that actually it refers to the section about climate, environment. But it's a, it's a whole section that you wouldn't know is in there uh, that talks about environmental racism, uh, which you might, uh, might be a phrase you've never actually heard. Um, 
but I just want to read one paragraph out of there and then give you an example because it's relatively close to home. We talked a little bit about it last time when we talked about like where we dump our trash. Um, some of you know because you're longtime uh, Johnson City people, and that is I live right next to Civitan Park, uh, and I have for 26 years, but some of you, that's no time at all. Um, I mean, you've lived, you've lived here for, no, what I mean is you've lived here, some of you've lived here over twice that long. And so you remember what I didn't know when I bought my house one block from um, Peterson Place, one block from Sutan Park, and no one told me that I was living next to what used to be the city dump. Okay, It was a park, but I used to go running there, take my kids to play there, and even when you know we moved there, we started having all these old tires that were coming up out of the ground and all kinds of other things that were coming up out of the ground. And, and the truth was, nobody knew, nobody knew what had been dumped there because no one ever paid attention to where we dumped anything. Right? It wasn't Johnson City's fault, nobody knew. When I, when I was growing up in Indiana, I lived on a little farm there was no trash pickup in the country where I lived. I never even heard of trash. I didn't know there was such a thing as trash pickup. I don't even know to this day if there was trash pickup anywhere. I mean, I assume there was in the suburbs, but I, I lived in the, in the country. So part of my job growing up was I took the burnable trash out to a container and I burned it. And we took the stuff that wouldn't burn, the bottles and the tin cans, and we took it to the back of our property and dumped it. I mean, what else could you, I mean, you had to take care of your own trash. What else would you do with it? And so Johnson City had to dump, and so we just dumped everything there, including industrial waste, stuff that we didn't even know what it was, and we didn't know what it would do. We just weren't thinking. And I'm not trying to blame anybody for that. No one was thinking about this, okay? It's not a matter of blame. But you may know that they did come in and did some core drillings at Civitan Park. And it became a low-level Superfund site. Don't know if you knew that. Um, it's like, welcome to Johnson City and the Kennisons. You know, just a, just a couple years after we found out we have a low-level Superfund site, like 100 yards from my house. Um, but my kids were fascinated because what they did, you don't remember this as well as I do, but for a year, a year, they trucked in five days a week, 400 truckloads of dirt a day. For a year. Okay. They put a liner down and they brought in all this dirt. And that's why you have a soccer park there now. Okay, with trees and things. Because underneath it is some really bad stuff. Okay, and they capped it so that it wouldn't. And so, yeah. So that's just in here, and, that's, and that happens all the time, right? I mean, there's lots of stuff out there. And it has an impact on, as we said last, last time, it's not coincidence that um, 
I'm trying to pull up my copy of the resolutions. I'm not trying to, you know, text somebody <laughs> an important message. Uh, I didn't want to. I didn't want to spend the eighty dollars for the hard copy. So uh, I, I bought the online, the, the this version, which is. Um, and so, it's not surprising that, um, you know, the current seven-county landfill. Um, I'll just say it boldly. It, it's not in the ridges. Okay. Um, it's across the street from one of the largest housing projects in Johnson City, right? It's not. It's not by accident, right? It just didn't happen to land there, and we just have to be honest about that. And so, here's the paragraph from the resolutions I just want to read to you. It says, "Not only are people of color." differentially impacted by toxic waste and contaminations. They can expect different responses from the government when it comes to building resilience after an environmental disaster or remediation. This can be clearly seen during and after Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Sandy, and in the toxics, toxic waste remediation efforts in Dixon County, Tennessee. Okay. Now, the Book of Resolutions is a book of resolutions that's read in, by Methodists all around the world. So here, here they're mentioning in this resolution, Dixon County, Tennessee. People of color and communities of color receive sluggish attention to their concerns. So I'm just curious, does anybody know what happened in Dixon County, Tennessee in the last 20 years? I didn't, I had to look it up. I thought Dixon County, Tennessee, what's that about? Where's Dixon County? Geography lesson. Somebody knows that. Where's Dixon County, Tennessee? West of Nashville. About 40 miles. There's Dixon, the city Dixon, Dixon County. Okay, it's about 40 miles west of Nashville. And beginning in the 1960s, um, for about three decades, um, a very toxic uh, industrial um, solvent called TCE was dumped from manufacturers in Nashville in Dixon County. Now Dixon County is about 490 square miles. Um, very small uh, population of people with color, of people of color, less than 5%. Uh, they own less than 1% of the land in Dixon County. All of the waste deposits are in their neighborhood. All of them. Okay. They started testing, they, they, they realized that this, this TCE is a really, really nasty uh, cancer-causing agent. And so they started doing tests on well waters in the surrounding areas. And in 1993, this is really hard to talk about. In 1993, uh, all the, a lot of the neighbors who were white were told that their wells were contaminated 
and that they needed to be put on municipal water, and they were. The black community was told that the water was fine. And so for eight more years, they had that, and the only reason they found out they had a problem was because everyone in their neighborhood was getting cancer. And so they tried to get answers, and it was not easy. Talk about sluggish response from the government. They, they tried really hard to get the answer, and they finally found it out. They finally found out what was going on. Uh, and this one woman had just had a crusade. Right? One of her family members was dying of cancer, and she found out from her neighbors, like, everyone's getting cancer, and this has not been going on in our community. What's going on? So they finally found out it was that their wells were contaminated. And no one told them. In fact, they were told the exact opposite, even though their wells had been tested. Yeah, so it took, it took, it took eight years for the word to get to them that they were drinking <coughs> cancer-causing water from their own wells. And so that, that happens, okay? And, and we never know about it. I'd never heard about it, right? Um, and I wish I could say that, that's the only time it's ever happened, something like that. Um, so the United Methodist Church like, cares about that. I mean, that's not loving your neighbor. I think we're all pretty clear about that. That's not loving your neighbor. And so if the Book of Resolution says, you know, we need to be careful to make sure that people who don't have power, who don't have a voice, that we make sure that they're treated like everybody else, right? Um, if, we have, if we have power, if we have influence, um, we need to make sure that our neighbors who just by being who they are, whether we like it or not, it, they feel a little more vulnerable than some of us. And they have reasons to feel a little more vulnerable than some of us. And so, so there's a section on that. And I just wanted to say, you might, you know, if you ever open the Book of Resolutions, you might think, well, why is the United Methodist Church getting involved about something called environmental racism? And what, is, what if it even is that? It's not just people of color, it's also native peoples. Um, yeah, there's all kinds of stories about, I mean, you, you should probably check to see um, where some of the nastiest stuff that we have to get rid of, you know, is radioactive waste. I mean, nuclear power um, is clean as long as you don't think about, like, what are you, you going to do with the waste? That we really don't know what to do with we're doing our best, but we don't really know. All that we know is that it lasts for thousands of years. And you can imagine trying to figure out, like, how do we safely store stuff that's going to be around for thousands of years? I mean, no one has, no one knows, <laughs> right? We're just doing our best. Um, but you can imagine, like, where some of that stuff ends up. It's not equally distributed. Um, well, I just want, that was, that's a kind of entree into what we said we would talk about today, which was trying to say just a little bit about why Christians 
ought to care about how climate change affects our neighbors. And we said we weren't even going to try to solve the question of, because no one can say definitively in a way that makes everybody happy, um, what percentage of climate change is due to human activity. Like everybody agrees that it's some, it's not none. And so, and, and, and no one disagrees that the climate isn't changing. Um, I'm assuming you had your TV on this week, right? Um, from, from 1980 to now, these last three decades, uh, the frequency of what's considered to be extreme weather events has tripled okay, in the last 30 years. Um, and they've become more destructive. And yet that destruction is also not equally spread out. Now, some of you know, because you're good news watchers, you know that this, um, the storm that we're concerned about, because it's near our neighbors and we have friends and family there, but you also know it's not the most powerful storm in the world right now. Um, it's, it's the one hitting the Philippines. The typhoon that's hitting the Philippines uh, that had 165 mile an hour per winds. It's a super typhoon. It's like off the charts. Um, and it doesn't look like originally, like it may have been as destructive. Um, but this is the case with all uh, weather events, and that is parts of the world are more vulnerable than other parts, right? And so we can talk about. We have this way of talking about natural disasters. But it's not just natural disasters. Natural disasters are never natural disasters alone. Right? That makes it too easy. It makes it sound like, you know, it's like I'm an insurance person. It's an act of God. Right? I have nothing to do with it. Well, no, but, um, yeah. The most recent report that I've read says that for one of these extreme weather events in, you know, relatively well-off countries like ours, so that the average death rate is 23 persons per event, which I'm not trying to make light of. In the developing world, it's 1,050 per event. This is just average. So you begin to see, um, like people in the Philippines, the, the article I was reading, um, talked about, well, why didn't they evacuate? They, they saw the super typhoon coming. It's because they don't have anywhere to go. I mean, we, we had all these places that people could go, at least a lot of them could go and ride it out. I mean, the only uh, shelters they have are schools. <laughs> um, and so they, all, they always wait till the last minute. Um, to go there, and there's not nearly enough. Um, but yeah, there's just, it's a completely different way of thinking about the, what kind of resilience is built in. And this is gonna be more and more the case. Um, we have, you know, we have, you've heard this, right? Even in, when you were listening to about the hurricanes, I mean, sea level is rising, um, which is gonna make, and the, the oceans are warming, which makes these, Storms more intense, and you saw how quickly 
this is what's rare, it is so quickly a hurricane went from a one or two to a four, like in less than a day. Um, this is kind of unusual. And of course the storm surge and the, the weather um, is in this kind of rain. I haven't seen the latest yesterday uh, near New Bern, North Carolina. They've gotten 39 inches. It's probably more than that now. But yesterday was 39 inches of rain. Um, now you know what a couple inches does here. Uh, you can only imagine what 39 inches plus storm surge does. You've seen some of the pictures, right? Um, half the world's population lives within 40 miles of the ocean. Half the world's population lives within 40 miles of an ocean. So there are a lot of vulnerable people in the world, right? Some of those are, are wealthy people like us who can get out of the way. Uh, a lot of them are not, right? And so part of what the church has to think about is like, okay, can we stop arguing about like who's doing it? I, I'm thinking that people right now who are facing this think, I don't really care who, who's responsible, but who's going to do anything? Right? Who's going to do anything? Um, can we afford to decide definitively like who's at fault? And what's going to change once we do that? Um, this is, and nobody thinks it's going to get better. It's going to get worse. Right? And it's, it's a kind of really challenging feedback loop. Uh, because some of the things that we're doing, and this is why it's not just a natural event, some of the things that we're doing, not, it doesn't just make it incrementally worse. It makes it a lot worse. Um, think about something like, uh, we've talked about the Amazon rainforest. I mean, the rainforests are one of the things that, that God created. That, that, that's a, a kind of beautiful buffer. It, there's so much life that's tied to the rainforests. And so sometimes when you hear environmentalists talk the rainforest, you think about, oh, they're worried about some kind of rare, you know, tree frog down there and trying to save that. And um, um, who can worry about that? We're worried about people. And so I understand that that's the way you're hearing it. Um, but it's not, it's not that simple, right? It's not that simple. Uh, about 20% about of the oxygen on the planet comes from the rainforests, okay? 20% of the oxygen. 25% of fresh water, we talked about water here, is actually in the Amazon forest. Um, and we're doing things as human beings, it's complicated, but we're doing things, as you know, um, destroying the rainforest. And we don't even know what we're doing, but most of you know about the, the water cycle, right? Uh, the, the three worst droughts in recorded human history that we know of in the Amazon were in 2005, 2010, 2015. And 
They're partly caused uh, by human activity in the rainforest, right? Um, we're deforesting the forest. Um, why? Well, all kinds of complicated reasons, but partly to create pasture land, um, to raise cattle so that Western and European countries can have cheap beef. Okay. Um, Brazil is the world's largest exporter of beef. Okay. They have the second largest number of cattle in the country, I mean in the world, next to the United States. But they export more of their beef than we do. Um, so that's, that's part of why it's being cut down. Right, is for this kind of insatiable desire for meat. Um, but that's, again, it's kind of short term because the less, the fewer trees you have, I mean, the Amazon creates rain, right? Water evaporates from the Amazon and then it rains. The fewer trees you have, the less that happens the less oxygen gets made. This is just basic science, okay? And there's all, so there's just that. I mean, a lot, so part of the weather shifting patterns has to do with how, you know, rain just doesn't show up. Um, it's, it's partly through evaporation. And so, but there's all kinds of reasons to care about the Amazon besides the, you know, uh, endangered tree frog. Let me just make it very personal to you. Um, Thirteen hundred of the two thousand cancer drugs in the world come from the rainforest. All right. Thirteen hundred of the two thousand cancer drugs. Twenty percent of all of your prescription drugs are from natural substances from the rainforest. Um, and <laughs> we only we only have identified, we only know, we think we think we only know five percent of the species that are even in the rainforest. Ninety-five percent of the species that are in the rainforest, we don't even know what they are yet. So we have no idea what kind of potential they have there. So even if you're just completely self-interested Almost, you know, huge percentage of any medicine that we're going to create in the next 50 years will come from the rainforest if we still have them. So your children, their children, their children are probably hoping that somebody wakes up and says, is, is this a good trade-off? Um, again, it's complicated. I mean, people are trying to get the Brazilian people to, to raise some different things. It doesn't require cutting down the rainforest. But again, they need help with that. They're, they're a poor country, and so we, you can't just blame them. But this is why, I mean, we're interconnected more than we know. We're not on an island. And so this is trying to think about what's it, thoughtfully, what does it mean to love our neighbor, because these 
issues, the, the damage that's going to come through our not being good stewards of creation is going to fall disproportionately on people who are more vulnerable than we are. Let me just tell you a couple things that maybe to try to connect some dots. One of the things I said, part of being a, a theologian is you get paid to connect dots that don't look like they're connected. Um, and just think about some of the things that climate change is bringing that, as I mentioned two weeks ago when we were talking about this, uh, the Department of Defense knows this. Uh, Fortune 500 companies know this. They know they can't stick their heads in the sand. Um, so drought is one of the major issues facing our world right now. Uh, drought causes famine. That's terribly, you would know, destabilizing of countries. Uh, if you need an example of this, think of Somalia. Uh, you've heard of Somalia because you know it's like a really dangerous place in the world. Uh, but it didn't just become a dangerous place in a, in a failed state overnight. It's tied to a horrible famine they had back in the 80s. You may remember, I actually had forgotten. <laughs> right? I, once I read it, I thought, oh yeah, there was a famine back in Somalia in 8, but I'd forgotten. Right? Um, and that famine, um, as often as the case, led to a civil war in their country. And, and then the famine continued, and you know, a quarter of a million people died because of the famine, and another million people became refugees. Because there's nothing to eat. I mean, how long are you going to stay in your country if there's nothing to eat? So, so the surrounding countries, and again, this is terribly destabilizing. But a lot more, I mean, talk to the people in the Department of Defense. They think this is going to be one of the greatest challenges in the next 50 years is all these destabilized areas of the world where drought is coming, people don't have water. You don't have water, you don't have food. You have food insecurity. Um, people begin migrating. And it's just going to be really, really hard. And the question is, how do, how do Christians think about that? How do we respond to that? Uh, what's our... What's our responsibility for our neighbors who live half a world away? But it's not going to be half a world away, right? Because those conflicts have a way of spilling over into the rest of the world. So again, even if you just want to be completely self-interested, this is going to affect you and your grandchildren and their grandchildren, uh, whether we like it or not, or whether we agree about what caused it. It's, it, it looks like it's going to happen. And everybody else is prepared. I mean, people who have something at stake, like the Department of Defense, Fortune 500 companies, they are preparing for this. They know they cannot stick their heads in the sand because their livelihood and their responsibilities hinge on it. So a lot of these things are connected. Um, things like climate change, famine, food security, migration. These are, these are not often separate things. Uh, they're often closely connected, which makes it hard. I mean, I think one of the reasons that talking about any of this is 
is difficult is it's just really hard to get your head around it. It's a really complex problem, and it's so overwhelming. And then you think, well, what, what can I do? Uh, what can we do? And there are Christians around who are trying to think about, what's, can we at least act locally? Um, and I think, you know, Muncie's pretty good at acting locally, and we do our best to try to act globally, too. And I think at the end of the day, that's what we have to think about. Like, what's our responsibility? Um, how do we try to do what we can and pay attention? Um, I have a good friend who's a pastor in Naples, Florida, uh, which is a pretty vulnerable place. Um, he's at uh, Cornerstone United Methodist Church. Roy Terry is his name. And um, he one day got to thinking about how little they knew about even just their own environment. <laughs> I mean, what they knew. I mean, he, I think he asked one day, he asked if anybody in their congregation knew what watershed they lived in. Like, do you know where your fresh water comes from? And nobody did. Dare I ask? <laughs> Anybody know what watershed, what the name of the watershed is that we're in? It's the Watauga. Yes, it's the Watauga watershed. Yeah. Um, you could look that up and find out, like, what is the water? Where's the water come from? Where does it go? Everybody lives in a watershed. <laughs> And, and they realized they didn't know theirs. And they, and they started studying it and realized um, that they're in the same watershed as, I don't know if you've ever been to Naples, but the Audubon Society has a stunning uh, refuge there. Um, almost like, in, like looks like the Everglades, and you can walk around and you see it's extraordinarily beautiful. They realized they were in the same watershed, which means they're, they're what they do with water matter. I mean, it, it goes places. And so they started paying attention, like, what do they do? And so they started looking at their own land, and they started, I mentioned other churches had done, they started planting um, gardens, and they started planting fruit trees, and they started sharing this with the community. And they started realizing that they, they had enough land that could be a, a staging ground for uh, when there were hurricanes and when there were tropical storms in their area. Um, and so they, they do that, they're an emergency responder. Um, and so they just decided that those were just minimal things they could do uh, to pay attention that, that they, their daily life is connected to God's creation right around them. And that their, their well-being and their neighbor's well-being is, is connected. Uh, to the natural order. And so Christians care about God's good creation is because God has made our, our livelihood, our well-being interdependent with the rest of creation. And so I can't love my neighbor, and you can't love yours, if I don't care about the air they breathe, the water they drink, what's dumped in their backyard. Right? I mean... I thought I'm just going to love my neighbor in the abstract. 
And so, yeah, these are, these are things, that's why the United Methodist Church cares about these things. And that's why it shows up in the social principles, in the book of resolutions. Um, they're not meddling in politics. They're, they realize, I mean, in the words of, you know, the Gospel of John, you know, that famous verse about, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, I love Eugene Peterson's the message on that verse. It says, and, and the word uh, took on skin and moved into the neighborhood. Okay. And I've been thinking a lot about our neighborhood this week, and I wondered, if Jesus moved into our neighborhood, where would he live? And I don't have an answer to that. I think there's lots of answers to that. But one of the answers I had this week was, I wouldn't be surprised if he'd lived at the Severe Center. So how are we going to think about that? Um, I hope we do the right thing. We're saying the right things. And that's a start. Saying the right things is the right thing. Planning the right things. I hope we follow through. Because um, if you've been here long enough at Muncie, you know that our identity as a church in the last two or three decades has been very much bound up with our neighbors across the street. And the next two or three years, our neighbors are going to get moved out. And they're worried about us forgetting them. And I hope we won't. I hope we won't. Let's pray. Gracious God, we confess that we are so easily overwhelmed by the challenges that we face. And we realize that part of the challenge is that many of the problems we face, um, we didn't ourselves cause them. We're part of a, a long history of people who, who caused them. And yet, uh, we're dealing with them, just like our children and our grandchildren, their grandchildren will deal with problems that we created. And so we ask for a sense of hope in the midst of the challenges. Hope you'd give us eyes to see our neighbors as you see them. Pray we might never forget your love for us and all creation and the call that you've given us as your people and followers of Jesus to love our neighbors as a way of loving you, <coughs> these neighbors who are made in your image. And so may we always keep that foremost in our minds, uh, this great call to love you and love our neighbor in very concrete ways through our daily lives. To so give you thanks for all the ways in which this church is seeking to do that every day. I pray you continue to encourage and challenge and inspire us uh, to continue to do that. Uh, in the days and years to come. We pray this through Christ. Thanks, Bill, for raising our awareness to that. Um,